0: chosen a text in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 26, that in some ways doesn't deal directly uh, with the commandment. It isn't a case law in that way. We've looked at a lot of those case laws, the specific of a case law, and then broadened it out generally. The text we're looking at today, Deuteronomy 26, uh, 1 to 11, though it doesn't directly state the commandment, is really at the very heart of the commandment, do not covet. Um, And uh, with that, let us uh, turn to the text. We'll read it, uh, and then we'll pray. So Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 to 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which 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 you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid, us, laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. You and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for all your good gifts and the way that you have redeemed us. And Lord, we ask that you would, as we study your word, make us mindful of those gifts. Uh, but Lord, make us particularly mindful of you, the giver of those gifts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you come to this 10th commandment, I don't know if you noticed this when I read it, but it, it seems to touch on some of the other commandments, right? It begins with, uh, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, we looked at adultery uh, some weeks back um, and that commandment. Um, and then it says, You shall not desire your neighbor's house, etc., his field, or his male servant, or female servant, all that. Um, and so. It seems, at least with regard to these two commandments, the seventh and eighth commandment, do not commit adultery and do not steal, that it's dealing directly with those things. Um, It's kind of rehashing the ground, if you will, going over it again. But it's interesting because do not covet also deals with the first and second commandment, having no other gods and not making any idols. After all, coveting is the worship and fashioning of gods in our hearts. Is it not? It's it's taking something and making that thing ultimate. I covet this. I want this. This thing is my God. So it deals with the first and the second commandment. Have no other gods. Don't make any idols. And in reality, coveting is what leads to the breaking of the sixth commandment, right? Not that murder. You don't murder unless you're unless you covet something right you you don't hate somebody unless there's something in your heart that is says i deserve this and that person has taken it from me or whatever it is and you get mad and hate and anger and murder so it can lead to the, the sixth breaking of the sixth commandment and as well as the ninth commandment you start coveting your neighbor's uh house and your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's stuff all of a sudden how do you start speaking about that neighbor Right? Start break, bearing false witness, trying to bring them down a notch, trying to show how they are uh, not what they're cracked up to be. That, that's kind of where it leads, so breaking of the ninth commandment. And uh, it's not that different from the fifth commandment. Either. It leads to the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother, uh, which deals with all the kind of relationships we find ourselves in, whether authorities above us or subordinates below us how we treat those those relationships when we covet we often if we have somebody below us we'll abuse them to get what we want right or if somebody is above us in power and strength we covet that power and strength so we we mistreat and disrespect those in authority over us so now we've broken almost all the commandments with this coveting thing uh, but there are still two remaining right The third commandment, which is uh, keeping the name of the Lord and not taking it in vain. And the fourth commandment, which is to honor the Sabbath. Those seem pretty unrelated. Um, Maybe they have nothing to do with this covetousness. But actually, I think covetousness deals with those two commandments as well. So when we covet, when that becomes something that is so part of who we are and we we start to long for the things that don't belong to us and we speak about God in in flippant ways because our hearts are far from him, right? You praise God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. That's what the the prophets, God would say through the prophets to the people of Israel. They They were far from him because their hearts were on other things. They were coveting the world and their heart was far from God. And so the way they spoke of God was breaking the third commandment. And then finally, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. We're so concerned with keeping up with the Joneses, having bigger, better, faster, more, that we forsake the worship of God and the resting and contentment in God. We fail to give thanks to God for what he's provided. And so break the fourth commandment. All right, that's all. The covetousness deals with all of the heart issues, and from those, that covetous heart, it's like a root issue that infects us and causes us to break the other commandments. So this morning, I'm not going to be talking about those specifics, say coveting your neighbor's wife or stealing or what leads to bearing false witness and covetousness or any of that. kind of laid it out there for you right now, but this morning, I want us to go deeper. I want us to look at the root causes of covetousness that leads to a heart that is fundamentally at odds with God, and so with his law, and I believe that at root of covetousness is this deep-seated discontentment that we aren't getting what we deserve. We'll come to this, but that's what I want to explore. And I think that the text before us pulls us out of the mire of our selfish, covetous hearts and shows us a God who in fact doesn't give us what we deserve, but gives us what we don't deserve. And it is, I think, in seeing this God, in seeing his mercy and his grace that changes our hearts from discontentment to hearts that are thankful and joyful hearts. As we look at the God who gives us what we don't deserve, all the blessings of heaven, as we glory in that, all those other loves fall away. So this is our aim, that we would indeed be thankful and joyful in our hearts as we look to God for our satisfaction. That's our goal we'll look at it in three ways. First, we'll look at our stories. Second, we'll look at God's story. And finally, we'll look at a heart full of thankfulness and joy. So our stories, God's stories, a heart full of thankfulness and joy. First, our stories. As we've noted many times before, the context for the book of Deuteronomy is the Israelites on the cusp of the land of promise, on the precipice. They're looking over from the plains of Moab over Jordan to the uh to the promised land the land flowing with milk and honey and they're receiving a final instruction from the Lord through Moses and as we consider the command here in the very first part of chapter 26 which is when they enter the land and they have a harvest they were to take the first fruits of that harvest put it in a basket and offer it up to the Lord at the place that he has appointed where God is dwelling in the midst And they were to give thanks, remembering all that the Lord has done for them and given to them. When we consider this command right here before us, at this particular time in the life of Israel, I imagine that for the Israelites, it seemed highly theoretical. What do I mean? Well, farms, harvest, fruitfulness, rootedness, blessing, land flowing with milk and honey, it must have been extraordinarily difficult for them to grasp. Maybe it seemed a bit like a fairy tale. You see, their experience was one of not having, wasn't it? It was one of slavery, of dry wilderness deserts, of bitter waters, of enemies attacking of wandering about for years and years on end, and they, they had never experienced the type of life Moses was painting for them. When you get into this land, and you are sitting there fat and happy, and you have all this stuff, take a portion of it and give it to They could not, I don't think, grasp that reality. Notice how when they go to bring their offering in verse 5, that they also have to retell the family story. Did you catch that? <clears throat> Verse 5, it says, and you shall make response before the Lord your God, and this is the response, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous and so on. It's an interesting thing. They had to recount all of that. So I want to think about this a little bit sort of from the perspective of the Israelite encamped in the plains of Moab looking forward sort of put our minds into their, 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 their heads for a minute. <clears throat> Firstly, who is this wandering airman? Who is that? It, it may seem a little mysterious here in the text, right? When you read those words, it's kind of, it's kind of a strange thing. But it, it, it was Jacob. Who was Jacob? Jacob was uh, the one who first, he was the one who had the 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, he and his sons, uh, lived, uh, as sort of wandering nomads in the promised land, but they were, they were suffering a famine at one point. And that, if you I know the women's group has been going through the, the story of Genesis and how Joseph through many things ends up in a leadership position in, uh, Egypt, um, and so there's this famine, and the Lord raises Joseph to this place of prominence. But here is this wandering Aramean, Jacob, their forefather. And he lived in Padam Aram, from which we get Aramaean. right? So that's the Aramaean wanderer. Um, but what's really interesting is not so much Padam Aram or that he was Aramean, but it's this word wandering. You see that? It says... He was a wanderer. Uh, in our English language, wandering has kind of a, I don't know how you put it, it's, it's like a, it's somewhat neutral, kind of like aimless. Like when you go to the store, when I go to the store, often Aaron will say to me something like, you're, you're wandering around aimlessly, right, looking for stuff. Like you need to be systematic. <laughs> no, I'm not systematic. So I go, go through the store wandering. It's kind of this aimlessness. But that isn't the sense of the text of the Hebrew. That's not what it's like. The word wandering here uh, has the sense of loss. Not only loss of one's way, wandering around or about, but a loss of one's stuff. The King James Version translates this as uh, he was ready to perish. So Jacob was ready to perish. Uh, He was, another better word might be, a poor vagabond who was starving. He and his family were vagabonds, starving. And so they were ready to perish. And so what do they do? They go to Egypt to survive. And they did. And the Lord threw them into this nation. But then, while they were there, they got oppressed and put into hard labor and became slaves. So they become the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God in their misery, and God delivers them, only to bring them into the wilderness where they wander around again, suffering again from lack of water, lack of food, which, yes, God eventually provides for them. But they, they faced enemies along the way. They had their own internal conflicts, And now they were sitting in the plains of Moab, waiting to get to this supposedly uh, this supposed, uh, promised land that was flowing with milk and honey, yet it was full of these Canaanites. And you could only think that the the Israelites sitting on that, God, we hear what you're saying. Moses, we hear what you're saying. But how are these Canaanites going to be any different from the Egyptians? They're strong and mighty too. So it's hard for them to envision this harvest, right? This harvest land. Now, I want to ask a question. Did you notice how I retold the story How I framed it. I didn't necessarily. I didn't actually frame it the way that it's framed here in Deuteronomy. I focused on the negative. You see that? I focused almost exclusively on the negative. Sure I mentioned that God delivered him here and there and stuff. But but in the end I was emphasizing all the terrible things that had happened. Friends. How we tell stories about ourselves reveals how we view God and how we view ourselves in relationship to Him. How we tell the narrative of our life reflects how we view God and His relationship to us. And more often than not, our stories are laced with that discontent, are they not? Now, I need to be careful here. I want to just clarify things as I move forward. I think there's an opposite side of the coin. I think we can deceive ourselves if we act like life is always painless, right? If we never mention all the suffering and trials that we go through, and we sort of whitewash life and pretend and live in a fantasy world that everything is hunky-dory, and we go around, you know, shining happy people, um, always smiling, and we don't deal with the pain. We try to avoid it. Um, So when I talk about framing our stories, I'm not suggesting we whitewash suffering or pain. That we we actually engage with it, and I think the text does that. But what I would suggest is that more often than not, the norm is that we would view life and our past through the lens of this discontent, this sense of life didn't turn out how I wanted it to to be, and I'm unhappy it gets laced with resentment with bitterness with envy and really at the heart of it these stories that we tell is a heart of covetousness that says covetousness that says god has not been fair to me and has not given me what i deserve consider this What is uh, the most common and prevalent advertising message that is repeated to you over and over again? (laughs) You deserve this thing. You deserve this food. You deserve this car. You deserve this vacation. You deserve this job. You deserve this experience. You deserve this relationship. You deserve this stuff. Uh, I think an old McDonald's jingle way back was, you deserve a break today. So get up and get away to McDonald's. We could. My son was recently quoting one, um, from uh, it was like a Diet Coke ad. Uh, Just do you or whatever. Like you deserve to be whatever you want. Just do you. Um, The advertisers get our get our heart issue, don't they? They understand it. They're going right after it. They're saying, "I'm gonna I'm gonna feed that beast." and this beast, you know, it often turns to the people next door. Why should the Joneses next door enjoy this and that? And I don't get to. How many car ads literally involve neighbors coveting the other neighbor's car? They, they just, they're they just kind of shameless. Go after it. Well, yeah, we are by nature covetous. Let's Let's play on that. Neighbor one looks at neighbor two. Neighbor two has the nice shiny truck and everybody's going to Look at you that way if you get this truck, right? That's what, that's what it's made of. Kids. Looking at all you kids. Do you ever say that's not fair? Yeah? You say that sometimes? That's not fair. My sister got this and I didn't. Yeah, right? You say that sort of thing all the time. And do your parents, in response to this, kids say what? You guys say it. Kids say it. What do your parents say in response? (laughs) Right? But parents, guess what, kids? Parents, me, life's not fair. You see, this story of deserving better and more, that we tell ourselves, fails to realize two things. It fails to realize we don't deserve any of the things that we get in this life. What is fair? Uh, Let's talk about that. What is fair? Uh, When we start to delve into this question, we have to look at our hearts, we have to look at our sin, we have to look at our rebellion against God and It's not fair that God, who made us, who gave us life and breath, should endure rejection and rebellion. That's not fair. It's not fair that though He patiently endures with us and shows us mercy and grace, we stubbornly refuse to follow Him and obey Him and to call Him Lord. That's not fair. It's not fair that a holy and righteous God dwells in the midst of an unholy and unrighteous people. That is not fair. It's not fair that I should live and Christ should die. That's not fair. Friends, we don't deserve life and breath as children of the fall, as sinners, and rebels but this is the second reality we get way more blessing and gifts than we could ever dare to hope for in this life not to mention that. and this is God's story this is the second thing i want to look at the god's story notice our text the israelites were to recount the hardship they didn't. There was no rose-colored whitewash, right? They were to talk about that Jacob was a starving vagabond. The Israelites were indeed enslaved in Egypt. This poor, starving vagabond and his family were saved in Egypt. You go back to the story of Genesis and you see this miraculous story that even through the sin of, of Jacob's sons, Joseph was brought into this place of prominence that God could save his people. That's the story, right? And yes, they get there and they, they, God blesses them as they, they grow and multiply in the, the, the Egypt, in the place they were sojourning, so that the text says they become a great nation. Yes, they become slaves. And they're oppressed. They cry out to God and God hears them. He sees their affliction. He sees their oppression. He knows them. And so He comes and He brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror and with signs and wonders. He parts the Red Sea and He leads them through on dry ground and He leads them to that mountain where they worship the living God. This is God's... finally he brings them yes through the wilderness and all of its trials but the emphasis was on the place of God's promise he was marching them to the land flowing with milk and honey and the emphasis was not on the hardship though he didn't minimize it but the emphasis was on God and his care for his people friends how we frame our story the story of our lives matters Covetousness and discontentment, grumbling and complaining, are driven by a story that says we deserve to be God. That—that's—that's that, that's at the root of it. We deserve to be God. Corey Tenbu uh, grew up in the in the Netherlands. Uh, I have to give thanks to um, Holta for reminding me of this story and uh, community group. Uh, but Corey Tenboom uh, grew up in the Netherlands, uh, daughter of a watchmaker, clockmaker. And um, when the Nazis came in, they hid Jews and eventually were caught. And her and her sister ended up in a uh, concentration camp together. Um, I, I just want to read a little bit of this, if that's all right, because this, this passage is so striking, so absolutely striking. Um, so I'm going to read. This is her book. Um, the hiding place. Suddenly, Corey started up, striking her head on the cross slats above. They're in a barracks uh, in the concentration camp. Something had bitten her, her leg. Fleas, she cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them, descending from the platform and edging down a narrow aisle. They made their way to a patch of light. Here they are. Here's another one, Corey wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how, Betsy said matter-of-factly and took Corey a moment to realize that her sister was praying. Corrie, Betsy then exclaimed excitedly, he's given us the answer before we even ask, as he always does. In the Bible the mor- this morning, where was it? Uh, read that part again. And Corey checked to make sure that no guards were nearby, then drew out a pouch and a small Bible that she had managed to smuggle into the concentration camp. It was in 1 Thessalonians, she said, and finding the passage in the feeble light, Here it is. Comfort the frightened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is of the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Betsy interrupted. That's the answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can Start right now to thank God for every single thing about this barracks. Corey stared at her incredulously, then around at the dark, foul smelling room. Such as, she inquired, such as being assigned here together. Corey bit her lip. Oh, yes, Lord. Jesus, thank you. Such as what you're holding in your hands. And Corey looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in the room who will, meet, uh, who will meet you in these pages. Yes, agreed Betsy. Thank you for the c- very crowding here, since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at her sister expectantly and prodded Corey. Oh, all right, thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy continued on serenely, for the fleas. That was too much for Corey. She cut in on her sister, Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, Betsy corrected. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. The text goes on and a little bit. uh, They realize the guards never bother them. Nobody ever comes in to check on them. And it came to light in Betsy's mind when she was realizing they had asked one of the women... Uh, guards to come in and do something, and she wouldn't, refused to come in, that Betsy at that moment realized the fleas have kept the guards out of this place. Praise God for the fleas. Now, a woman in a concentration camp who would surely face death in so many ways was able to give thanks in all circumstances. Friends, We can only start to give thanks in all circumstances when we begin to understand that our story is from God and that this God who made us, who gives us life and breath and provides for us our daily bread, he redeems us and he loves us. And this is where I want to conclude, thinking about God and his love for us because thankfulness and joy are the byproducts of seeing God for who he is filling our hearts and minds with the things of God, the blessings of God, and with God himself. That's our aim. And so I want to look at this just very briefly, gaining a heart of thankfulness and joy. Our text ends with this uh, verse, verses 10 and 11. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruits of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. You and the Levites and the sojourner who is among you. The Israelites there were to offer up their thanks for the blessings God had given them in the land. But remember, for them, the land was still future. Up to that point, they had not received the fruit of the promised land. And they were clinging to the promises of God, and they were looking forward. You see, they were sojourners. They were wanderers. They were vagabonds, poor and needy. They were slaves. And yet, even in that, God was with them and was guiding them to that promised land. And as we consider who we are, we are pilgrims, sojourners. We are vagabonds in this life. We are poor and needy. Peter draws on this imagery in his first letter. He says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There is a day, friends, when we enter that promised land and we enjoy the blessings of heaven. Fundamentally, we enjoy God Himself. But today, we look forward, right? The thing that drives the pilgrim in his, in his faith, and in the Christian, as he marches on, is that we know that God is preserving us, is keeping us, and is working out all things together for our good. And so Peter goes on and he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Necessary trials, right? Necessary trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be proved to be precious, like gold and silver tested by a fire. Those trials like the ten booms, are meant to slough off the coarse material and show forth the brilliance of our faith. So as you look back on your life and you look back on all the things, oh, that were hard, the suffering that you're going through now, you think, how can I rejoice in this? Where is the joy? What is God doing? How do I see God in the midst of this? And the most striking thing that Peter says is in verse 7. The purpose is this. That, you may, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your soul's friends. As we look at this world, we need to look at it from the frame of reference of God, what He's doing in and through us in the various trials that we face. We need to find our joy in Him. I want to close as we think about this. The more we we reflect on God and the greatness of Him, the less... Our heart desires the things of this world. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, makes this profound statement. He says, a little in the world will content a Christian for his passage. Meaning, as we walk in this life, we can be content with what the Lord provides for us. As he gives us what is necessary for the passage through this life. But he goes on and he says, but all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a christian for his portion there's nothing in this world that can satisfy us no- nothing in this world was meant to satisfy us god says i will be your god you will be my people and i will bring you into the promised land and you will dwell in my presence and you will enjoy my gifts you will enjoy me what a glorious glorious thought friends we don't get what we deserve we get something far greater we get what we absolutely did not deserve The gift of God himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes there as you walk through the suffering and pain of this world. That horizon there. And watch as those things of this world start to seem less significant. And the joy and thanksgiving grow in your heart for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.